Welcome to Imagine This Podcast. A conversation show from Imagine MKE, where we talk to creative leaders in Milwaukee and beyond to highlight all the incredible transformative power of their work in our region. We hope that after listening to the pod, you'll be able to imagine our city's arts and culture ecosystem and all the awesome artists, organizations, and creative assets within it in a new way. I'm David Lee. I'm Lindsay Sheridan. And I'm Elizabeth Gasparka. Can you believe it? We've made it to the end of our season, an arbitrary end that we set up (laughs) so that we could take a little bit of a break over the summer. But here we are. Welcome to the closer of this season. Elizabeth, David, how are you? Feels great to be here, Lindsay. (laughs) Real good, Lindsay. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. I can't believe we made it past season one. Um, I think we've lost count, but we've probably spoken to a a hundred plus people. We've done a hundred of these episodes. It's an incredible journey. Yeah, super excited to be here with you guys and to have come into the fold in the last little while. And yeah, excited to regroup during the month of August and then hit the ground running again for season five in a few short weeks. So this is a great time, listeners. If you have ever wanted to be on the podcast and have something you'd like to share with us, send those pitches in, in Hit August. Us up. We've, we'll have time to schedule it out, and we would love to hear from you. <laughs> As David would say, slide into our DMs. Slide mm-hmm. into our DMs. They, <laughs> slide into our, uh, our our podcast email at pod and imaginemke.org. That's more professional. Yeah, we would yes. appreciate that. Thank you. You could also Instagram message us. Elizabeth would be delighted to have you slide into our DMs. Yeah. <laughs> Who's our season four season finale guest, Elizabeth? Ben Balcom of Microlight Cinema, Milwaukee's own Microlight Cinema. Well, we're going to learn more all about Microlights in the interview, so we won't. I won't spoil it. But as we reflect on the conversation that you had with Ben today, that got us thinking about our own experiences of encountering a person or encountering a piece of art, something that kind of modeled or gave us permission to rethink a medium of art. So Elizabeth, I'm curious what comes to mind for you. My good friend from college, from Oberlin College, Danny Gershkoff, she was really instrumental in um, the beginning of my own musical practice, which, which started at Oberlin. She was a singer and a songwriter and a flautist, but her approach to music was so revelatory for me. I mean, you couldn't put her voice in a box. It was very expansive. Mm -hmm. Like she had a massive range, but she was also fearless in the way she used her voice. And I remember just having some shared performances with her and workshopping music with her in early days of songwriting. And she just had this ability to just throw her whole diaphragm into whatever Mm -hmm. note she was aiming for. And it was, it was Mm -hmm. really inspiring. And I remember her, I remember kind of shyly asking her for advice as a singer-songwriter at some point uh, in those early days. And I remember her just outright saying something that really stuck with me, which was, there is no bad sound. There is no bad sound. As a vocalist, all sounds are okay. And <laughs> there's a place for every kind of sound that you can make as a vocalist. I love that. And I still try to remind myself of that sometimes when I'm in the weeds or, you know, feeling like, oh, why can't I be this kind of singer or that kind of singer? Or what is, you know, does this instinct have a place in this kind of genre of music that I'm working in? Uh, And I just remember the voice of Danny Gershkoff telling me that it's all okay. Was she your year or was she older than you? She was my year. I should also give a plug her latest project is called Danny and Joe, and it's out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But she's up to some some pretty wild and exciting musical stuff these days. So what's up, Danny, if you're listening to this? You know, as you were sharing that story, Elizabeth, I sort of had this feeling that that, that she is somebody who sort of came into this world sort of fully formed and full of whatever that was right inside of her. And and so I, I always sort of imagine those people as, as somehow older mm-hmm. than us, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of a little bit more advanced, but it, it's mm-hmm. really cool that, you know, same year, but yet, you know, in that way, sort of fully formed in, in, into, yeah. into college. At the ripe old age of 19 or whatever yeah. <laughs> we were. <laughs> 
She was definitely wise beyond her years. That's for sure. You know, I think for me, Elizabeth, you know, as, as you were telling that story, I was, my mind sort of wandered to like about the same time, maybe a little bit earlier in my college years where I discovered the films of three really important filmmakers to me uh, that really sort of changed the way I sort of think about um, not only films, but drama in, in, in general. Right. And, you know, I know that the team has been sort of making a bit of, of my, of my, uh, of the treasure trove of information I shared with everybody last week about my improvisational stage play torn. But that really came from a, uh, from a, you know, encountering the films of Wong Kar Wai, of John Cassavetes, and of Terry Malick, um, you know, in the sort of late, late high school, early, early college years, where, where they introduced to me, I think, a, a sense of improvisation, not only in the construction of drama, which, you know, is, is sort of the, the lineage of, of the John Cassavetes style from, from the 70s New York independent film scene, but also sort of almost visual improvisation. I, I, I think the, the the sense of like Wong Kar Wai's almost like we will we'll do it live and kind of just figure it out as we go. Um, if you all haven't seen Chungking Express, it is just a, an achingly beautiful romantic movie. And yet it also is kind of quirky and, and, and bizarre and fun. And uh, for those of you who, who don't know Terry Malick, you know, I, I think his his movies are these meditations on on life and connection and our connection to nature. And you would never know it if you read a script that 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 he's uh that he's made, right? I mean, he's always sort of a guy who's like, you know, we're we're gonna shoot what's pretty and not what's on the page, um, and we'll figure it out later. And I think there's a part of those three filmmakers that that really helped break open the sense that like it's not what's on the page it's the feeling of what you're trying to get across um and mm -hmm. even if it is something a little bit more kind of you know sort of reflecting back on our conversation with ben maybe even if it's a little bit less experimental like you can kind of get to a feeling um that's sort of at the core of of, of what art is right and, and i think for 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 me those three filmmakers are are sort of um, really sort of transform the way I look at not only film and drama, but also I think, as you know, like work, right? Like how we do work uh, in, in, in the office setting. And, and I think um, it's, yeah, just really, I, I found them to be incredibly transformative. How about you, Lindsay? Well, hearing you both talk about uh, Elizabeth College and David, kind of the transformative influence of more improvisatory work makes me think of uh the dance department at my college um shout out to jane holly and amanda ham who were there when i was there uh, they'll never hear this but two professors that i took a couple dance classes from and i think i had done i had been a kid that did dance as i grew up i had the the privilege of taking dance for many years uh like 12 years <laughs> growing up and of course by design or by necessity somewhat, uh, it was pretty straightforward, right? I was taking ballet, I was taking tap, I was taking jazz, like relatively more traditional um, dance forms through middle school. And then I dropped off and focused on music instead. But I think the the dance department at my college was pretty out there, you know, in a way that I don't think, uh, especially if you came in with kind of a more traditional music background or theater background was probably a little bit scary at first, and a little bit like, what are they up to over there? Um, Cause it was very <laughs> improvisatory and very like contact improv based. And um, you know, I remember we booked Amanda to do a duet with a cellist for a show and she had some frameworks, right? She had some frameworks, right, of what she thought she might do, but a lot of it was just in the moment and responding to the music and responding to the audience. And that felt uh, incredibly cool to witness. But being in a dance class and being like, just start moving and see what happens. <laughs> uh, you don't know how, you know, you don't know how you're going to literally intersect with people in the in the nature of contact improv, right, where you you're anyway. Um I'm like motioning and this is an audio podcast, um, <laughs> but uh, felt like you had to get totally outside of yourself and not be afraid. And, uh, and not that I ever did a performance in that style, like the many of the dance students did, but 
knowledge of that and knowledge of the schools of dance practice that built into that style of movement was really eye-opening to me beyond the little world of like being in ballets that I had been in growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Mm, contact improv and modern dance were pretty exciting to me too. I had dabbled in them in college <laughs> and yeah, I'm, it's all, it's all coming back. It's all coming back to me now, as you described <laughs> and uh, visually acted out a little bit of, of contact improv there by yourself in your room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we've touched on film and music and dance, and we're going to dive deeper into film and the conversation today. Elizabeth, can you tell us about our guest? Sure can. Ben Balcom is a filmmaker currently living and working in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and is the co-founder and co-programmer of Microlight Cinema. Since 2013, Microlights has hosted over 50 film and video artists from around the world. Combining elements of documentary, fictional narrative, and abstraction, Balcom's films investigate the relationship between cinematic artifice and ordinary affects. He has explored melodrama, essay film, and most recently, regional histories. His films have been exhibited at venues and festivals, such as the European Media Festival, Media City Film Festival, Antimatter Media Arts, Alchemy Film, Ann Arbor Film Festival, and Slamdance. Balcom received his MFA in film, video, animation, and new genres from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and his bachelor's degree in film video production from Hampshire College. After the break, Ben Balcom. Welcome, Ben, to Imagine This Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to get to know you a little bit and, and to learn about uh, your work at UWM and also with Microlights. So yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's really a delight to be here. Thanks for the invitation and apologies. I promised before we started recording that my cat was going to behave and he's not. So there's a little <laughs> rustling in the background, which I'm going to try and eliminate real quick. It is all good. What's that? What's that quote? Never work with kids and animals. <laughs> this is this is that one time, right? Yeah, this is the time. Ben, to kick us off, we would love if you could tell us a story of an arts or cultural experience that left a strong imprint on you. Yeah, um, you know, this is one of the few questions that you had provided beforehand that I actually gave a little forethought too, though even with some preparation, I think my answer would have been the same. Um, While there were like plenty of uh, formative uh, artistic exposures in my life, the one that comes to mind probably most often and really connects me to the kind of art that I would continue to be interested in and the kind of cinema that I pursued in my life was the first time I saw, or at least the first memory I have of seeing a truly quote unquote experimental film, which, you know, really happened in college, thanks to my mentor, Abraham Rivette. In an intro to film class, he screened a film by Stan Brakhage called He Was Born, He Suffered, He Died. Uh, And it's a seven and a half minute movie, which is made up primarily of like non-image in that it's it's mostly kind of flashes of color, maybe brief glimpses of representational images shot in a camera. And, and it doesn't have any plot or narrative content, but a light went on when I saw that film because it, it just contained so much possibility. Uh, I realized in that moment uh, that there was permission to make films without any, uh, obeying any rules and that a film <clears throat> could mean essentially what you insist that it means mm-hmm. uh, and that you could have poetic and narrative content in a film that was otherwise non-representational. And that kind of experience of, of the tension between the language of the title that suggested a whole life life's worth of 
content, you know, compressed into like three statements and an, and images that were non-images. I, I just saw so much potential there. Um, and that was the film that's kind of just got me going, thinking about um, the fact that you could, you know, make films that seemed to contain a life's world or a life's worth of, of content and meaning and, and could be made by the simplest means. So that, that, that really like changed everything for me, mm. um, which is a little cliche because Stan Brakhage is probably one of the f- most famous names in um, the canon of experimental cinema. And I think many of us um, who study and practice that are, you know, in many ways trying to get away from the idea that such a major figure continues to influence everything, you know, mm-hmm. he both does and doesn't for me. But uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just gotta, you know, say it like it is. And that film, which is, a, as far as I know, a lesser screened, lesser known film of his, it's not available on any disc or digital format. Um, yeah, that one changed my world. Mm. So I studied film too in college and there was a, in, in the, in my production course, we had to all make a, everybody had to make a documentary. And for whatever reason, my documentary was totally, my, my film was totally underexposed. And so there was no, no, I had no film. And so the, our film professors basically said, here's a bunch of B-roll and garbage that we've gotten from other places. It's just, here's our archive, right? You got to edit something. And so basically like put together what was essentially a collection of images with some music and and whatnot. And you could sort of piece together a story. If I told you what it was about, you'd sort of get it, right? Because the images would sort of follow. And instead of the encouragement of of being like, oh, this is really interesting, right? Like, isn't this a a fun way to to sort of like explicate a story or, or whatever's in David's mind, given that he had all of this garbage to work with? The, the 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 resulting critique was this makes no sense you should have exposed your film properly yes i should have exposed my film properly but i also made a thing right that had sort of a a, a, a that, that sort of had a a perspective and and it really your your story about having the opportunity to to kind of like see the world in a new way through yeah. through film right is is something that ought to be encouraged more mm-hmm. absolutely i mean yeah as a you know, an instructor of cinema, I feel like it's really important to find that balance. And, you know, I struggle sometimes to quell my desire to tell students that, no, you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've like really got to figure out how to use that light meter. But also knowing that beginning with an attitude of expertise can be such a barrier mm. to entry for the arts and that, yeah, there is no right way. And so encouraging people to make do and, you know, be adventurous in figuring out how to make material work, even material that might seem quote unquote wrong is like an exciting moment. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've made stuff out of scraps of, or of yeah bad material or failed material. And, and sometimes that's sort of the most exciting like potential like well yeah okay this you didn't get quite get this right this might be wrong this might be scraps or junk what could mm. you do with it you know what would it mean to make this material work hmm. i gotta tell you of my of my body of work from college that that project was my favorite because it was the most fun it was the most creative in certainly and it had you know it sort of brought together all of the, the skills that we were working on at the time right yeah, yeah. So Ben, in your trajectory as an artist who became a filmmaker, when did you start to identify as a filmmaker expressly? Yeah. So this goes back quite a, a ways and um, it kind of allows me to touch on like the alternate ending for the first question, which would have been <laughs> that like, you know, yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and we had a great video rental store and honestly, some of the most impactful exposures to cinema happened when I was in middle school or high school and the video clerks discerning that I had a kind of freaky taste in the, yeah. you know, in the making. Yeah, I love it. Handed me some oddities from behind the counter and were like, we're going to freak this kid's mind. And, and yeah, and, and so like one of the, the most important versions of that is I got handed a tape of 
Bunuel and Dali's uh, Unchen Andalou, which is a major entry point for art cinema for most people. Often they see it in college, and I got to see it when I was in high school, and I remember watching it over and over and over again. Anyways, um, so in high school, my passion was music, and I aspired to become a, a jazz musician. Honestly, I mean, I, I thought I was going to try to go to a conservatory, a music conservatory for school. And around the same time, I was also being exposed to, thanks to some of my friends, to really interesting literature and poetry. Uh, I had a great education, went to excellent public high school in Evanston. But, you know, the best literature always comes from friends. And at that time, I was also good friends with someone whose older brother was uh, studying film in college at the time. Mm. So there was a lot of trickle down film knowledge and me and my homies were always watching movies, you know, like most kids, but um, also trying to replicate some of what we were seeing and kind of the B movies and, you know, schlocky horror mm. and action <laughs> films that we were watching. We were replicating those things in our free time making you know, movies with probably to this day some questionable subject matter. Um, <laughs> I starred in a film called Nam Crazy, where I played a Vietnam vet. You know, I, I leave it up to your audience to imagine how cringe that probably is. I don't know, really exciting psychosexual uh, content in those early films. <laughs> but I can remember at the end of high school, um, you know, on the precipice of having to make decisions about like, I'm going to go to what college am I going to go to? What's my life direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember embracing my good friend, Alex, who, who taught me the first principles of, you know, filmmaking ever. Um, and like in tears, <laughs> admitting that I just wanted to make movies, um, mm. even though I thought I was going to study music and you know, mm. and then part of that was, so I think that was the first moment I realized this was a medium that contained a lot of my interests and made mm -hmm. space for many interests, literary, musical, visual. It just, it was a catch-all medium and I could still study in many directions and then find a way to bring them in to one space. There's also a pragmatic decision where I realized a music conservatory was probably a crazy thing to do <laughs> and that if, if at least I should go to a liberal arts college where I could also learn some other things, you know, right. mm -hmm. uh, focus on the arts, uh, which I was feeling myself <laughs> drawn towards and like read some books, you know, mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. and yeah, had I gone to I mean, Berkeley College of Music, I might have, I don't know. Who knows where I would have ended up? I mean, maybe a famous jazz musician, probably not <laughs> likely. But so, so you study film in Hampshire. How do you how do you end up in Milwaukee? How do you choose Milwaukee as as the as the, your landing place for grad school for filmmaking? Given all of the other options and all of the other places that that may, to an untrained eye, seem like a a more a more interesting or or more uh, sort of um, opportune landing place. Well, there's two things that connect the two institutions. One would be that both schools had a, a lineage of, again, what we call, though it's an imperfect term, experimental filmmakers working at the institutions. Mm -hmm. And that's primarily the, the canon they taught, the, the, the lens through which cinema was engaged and, and taught to students. And that appealed to me when I visited and Hampshire, which has a small but unique archive of 16 millimeter avant-garde works. And so I got to be exposed directly in its proper medium to the world of experimental cinema, not in any complete way, but like in a way that just was impactful. Mm -hmm. And they, they stressed that they, they were very clear. We put cinema forward as an artistic medium, not as a commercial medium. Mm -hmm. And as someone who was you know, trying to navigate my way through art and education, I found that really appealing. And UWM's department is similar, especially the master's program. Um, it stresses 
uh, cinema as an art form uh, and teaches artist-made film uh, as opposed to a more commercial or industrial approach. Though it splits the difference, it does both. And mm-hmm. you know, that's not to say that any of us doing the one isn't very indebted to and interested and invested in the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of ethos of both departments or of both institutions, even though they're very different, a large public institution and a small private liberal arts college, you know, couldn't be more dissimilar. The ethos is very um, connected. Um, and the, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought because I was like, am I using the right word? Um, <laughs> the, um, the other connection would be that one of the people who worked in the equipment room or the tech facilities at Hampshire was a graduate of the MFA program at UWM. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be another literal connection. Um, but lastly, I would say there's only so many options for people who want to pursue MFAs, making artist made films or even pursuing the arts that are affordable. And UWM is a realistic option uh, for A, anyone who's interested in pursuing teaching experience, which was what I was interested in, and B, anyone who doesn't want to go into massive amounts of student debt uh, because it's a funded program, which is rare. Mm -hmm. So when I was making my choices about graduate schools, you know, I was applying to places like the Art Institute of Chicago and CalArts as well. But at the end of the day, you know, I was working three jobs in Chicago and I didn't really want to incur astronomical amounts of debt. Uh, I wanted to um, uh, accrue the normal human (laughs) amounts of debt, I guess. Um, So, yeah, so that was a huge impact. Teaching and cost and cost of living in Milwaukee, et cetera. So, again, some of it's rooted in the, the actual kind of the ideals, the aesthetic ideals of a place and the ethos of a place and the other half of it is pragmatic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're sort of touching on the institution itself of, of UWM, but what about Milwaukee? What were your impressions of this community in relation to film, commercial um, or experimental? Yeah. I'll admit that when I was first getting to know, when I was first considering the department, I, I didn't have an answer to that. It was more like a vibe check. Um, <laughs> Milwaukee, what I think was immediately appealing were honestly the facilities mm-hmm. and then some of the faculty members I met or uh, yeah, the, the instructors and academic staff. So I sat in on a, a, a class with Diane Kitchen, who no longer teaches at UWM. <clears throat> and she was teaching 16 millimeter cement splicing for the heads out there. And I just knew that I could come get the exact kind of hands-on analog film Mm -hmm. education that I was interested in at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also met Carl Bogner, sat in on one of his lectures and was just kind of instantly like, oh yeah, these, these people are doing it right. And then the, the facilities themselves were impressive. And Milwaukee, weirdly, I, I wouldn't say this today, but it, it gave me, it felt familiar having lived in Northampton, Massachusetts for a little bit. It wasn't quite Chicago, wasn't quite as small as Western Mass, but there was something in between where I kind of, you know, I visited my friend in River West, where I've now lived for just over 10 years and kind of felt like at home in, a, in an unexpected way. And I knew I wanted to, or I was interested in staying put in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. As someone who grew up outside of Chicago, went to school on the East Coast, who came back and was kind of interested in understanding the Midwest as a region. Yeah, that, that kind of constellation of, inf- of, of influences or constellation of reasons uh, was like why UWM appealed. One of the stats that I was surprised to learn, and, and this is part of the, the the story that I've often told about sort of why why for me, Imagine MKU is so important, or at least, you know, part, part of our mission, right, is to sort of 
talk about and amplify the assets here in Milwaukee as it relates to arts, culture, and creativity. And so one of the stories that I've often told is that had I known that when I graduated from college that there would be a regionally important film festival in Milwaukee film, a top 10 film school at UWM, and a community of artists and filmmakers here that I may have moved here as opposed to move to New York or Los Angeles, which which were the places I ended up in. And so to, to your eyes as somebody who's who's in it, right, in the in the film school and also in the in the film community, how do you perceive or how do you see these these different like places kind of or these different institutions linking up to kind of make Milwaukee kind of a, a more externally known film town, right? Or or a place where the industry or the 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 artistic sort of nature of, of, of film sort of come to come to the fore a little bit more. I can speak to a pattern that I've seen, you know, over the last couple of years, which is that I think what Milwaukee film does well, and I mean I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think there's a lot that Milwaukee film could do to improve what they do for the film community here. What I see is very exciting about the proximity between UWM and Milwaukee Film is that often recent graduates, both from the undergraduate and graduate level at UWM, find a home for their work Mm. in Milwaukee shows uh, at Milwaukee Film and have a remarkable opportunity to screen their work in front of a huge audience at a beautiful Mm -hmm. cinema. And that kind of exposure, that kind of audience engagement is probably one of the most empowering things for a young filmmaker in terms of the necessary momentum to keep producing. Because the reality of being a young artist outside of college is like, you're just like always on the precipice of not making it, of it not being possible. I mean, it's a deeply precarious moment both creatively and in terms of one's career. And all it takes often is like one thing that makes you feel like I got to keep chasing this because everything else is going to be like pummeling you in the opposite direction. Uh, You know, our economy is Mm -hmm. terrible. There are no jobs. The film industry in Milwaukee is small. And so, you know, I think as far as continuing individual and community-based production and creative efforts. You just need like one thing to be like, I want more. Mm -hmm. And I think the funding that, you know, there's not enough funding in Wisconsin or Milwaukee, but the, the Brico forward fund that the, the Milwaukee film facilitates is really important. And I appreciate that they fund a variety of projects from traditional documentary work to narrative shorts and features and experimental. So it it feels like there's no bias there, which often emerges in different, I think, funding or grant Mm -hmm. sources. So those those two things feel massively important. You know, I, I can't really speak to the reality of the film industry here because I've done my best in my life to avoid the film industry. If I'm being <laughs> honest. But it seems likely that most filmmakers will still pursue careers in either New York or LA, but it's sort of about there being this like, like a somewhat liminal economy here where mm. people are going to emerge and, and do a bunch of work here and stay for a certain amount of time. There's enough work to support enough filmmakers doing stuff for some amount of time. And then they launch into careers elsewhere. And I, I think we, you know, all like to see a more permanent year-round film industry. You know, I just don't know if that's going to happen given the nature of Wisconsin. And I don't mean like the fact that it's a terrible state, but I mean that like it's cold. It's cold. You know? <laughs> so, I, I, sorry, I love Wisconsin in a lot of ways, but obviously we've got a lot of work to do, right? So, mm. Mm. So, so just just a quick follow up. So, if we could build, not we as an imagine by ourselves, but w- if we as an imagine with all of our stakeholders could build more of a of a robust sort of cinemas industry or cinemas commerce industry here, would would, would a more robust 
Like if there were a few extra films being churned through here in Milwaukee or through Wisconsin, yeah. would that be supportive of, you know, film artists like yourself or some of the other folks who are coming out of UWM who want to sort of expand the, 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 the latitude, right, of, of film as a cinematic art form here in town? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is yes. Right. Um, so more of more is more, right? More of more is better. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think so. And though I don't think you were necessarily asking for input on the how, I, I mean, I, and this is inelegant, so bear with yeah. me, but my, my tendency is to say just fund artists, you know, <laughs> just like more money for the arts is the first necessary mechanism for, I suppose, building something like a commercial infrastructure, though, you know, I don't like art as commerce ideologically. Right. Mm. But, you know, at this stage right. <laughs> in human evolution, um, <laughs> it seems that artists' best and surefire way to supporting themselves is to commodify it and to make it a thing that, you know, that brings back some sort of income. And so I think if if there was, you know, seed money available without strings attached and people mm. could just make stuff then people would find their ways independently to commodify or commercialize what they're doing uh, <laughs> or yeah to to find the way into a market because so much content these days seems to be available for revenue streams or whatever like if you find the right audience you find find the right way anything you make can become a source of income i think mm. Um, mm. So I think it's rather than trying to kind of, you know, predict how it will happen, you know, oh, we need big film shoots, you know, we need uh, commercial work, we need ad work, or we need like, um, you know, we need the Joe Parra show, which like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sad that that show has been canceled because it did support a, a vast majority of the film community here. Mm -hmm. Um so not to undercut the impact of something like that, but I just don't think it needs to be like predict the target, say like HBO or a Netflix show. And then how to, how do we chase them here? I think it's just like give money to artists and see mm. what happens here. Because if you give artists resources, they're going to make interesting things happen and that will create um, attention from the ground up. Mm -hmm. I love um, that. Yeah. So, Jumping off of the idea of filmmakers and artists doing something with their inspiration and their energy, can you can you talk to us a little bit about the creation of Microlight Cinema and how that came to be and what stars aligned for you to start this this wonderful presenting series? Well, I got to give credit where credit is due. Um, I, I so I started Microlights with a close friend and lifelong collaborator, Josh Weisbach. And were it not for Josh's fervor, I don't think Microlights would have gotten started. I was finishing my MFA and I was pretty invested in staying focused on making art and teaching and then the transition to adjuncting and, and taking teaching seriously. Josh Weisbach and a couple of other um, filmmakers were doing a screening series. Then people graduated and left and Josh was like, I want to do more. And I was like, mm, yeah, mm, yes, putting stuff on is cool. Pr platforming is cool. But I don't know. I got movies to make. Um, <laughs> and so we were kind of on the fence about it for a little while. And then I was searching for an apartment with a friend and happened to look at an apartment in River West that was above uh, a defunct bar space, a bar that once upon a time was called Rick and Donna's a little neighborhood bar in the middle of a block on Bremen Street, just south of Bremen Cafe. And when I saw the space, and this wasn't the space I was moving into, it was right below the apartment. I thought, oh, I'm really close to something here. That is a screening room ready to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it was the perfect shape. It was a long <laughs> rectangle with a high ceiling. It's like, that's meant that is a cinema. So... I moved into the apartment and slowly started working on my landlords, just kind of like, what if, what might be possible? Like, would you rent the space to me? 
I know you have a lot of work to do. I'll move in as is, you know, there, there were two bar bathrooms. There was a nasty urinal. Uh, it was ugly. It was like, yeah. I mean, it just wasn't a space that they were going to rent to most people right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I kind of convinced them to let me rent it out and use it and, you know, as this thing. And that's when I really uh, turned around to Josh and said like, okay, let's do it. And part of that was motivated by the legacy of of other cinema projects Mm. and artist-run spaces in Milwaukee that I was starting to really get um, familiar with. So specifically Stephanie Barber's Mm. uh, Bamboo Cinema or Bamboo Theater, I, I always get it wrong. But having heard that in River West many years prior, there had been this artist run space that hosted, you know, really influential filmmakers. I was kind of like, okay, this, this town is like, this is part of this town. This is part of this town's DNA. Also, you know, living close to Zav Laplay's River West Film and Video and knowing Zav and Stephanie had many years of important collaborations and starting to get to know, you know, people involved in other artist-run spaces in Milwaukee. I just, yeah, you know, was kind of like, I that went a long way. That lineage, that history made me feel like the audience was there um, mm-hmm. beyond the university. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like silly to, to even question at that point. I had been in at UWM for two years, almost silly to question that there would be an audience for experimental cinema. Mm. But I wanted, uh, yeah, some sign that there'd be a broader audience. And yeah, those, those histories kind of helped as well as finding this space. And then I made the wonderful mistake of renting uh, ancient bar space um, for a couple of years, uh, which was impossible to heat in the winter, but having a space to establish routines for people mm-hmm. went a long way. And it wasn't, you know, all a success right off the bat, but I would say like our first shows were jam packed. And, you know, we tried a bunch of stuff and some of it worked, some of it mm-hmm. didn't. Um, yeah. So sorry. I feel like that was a winding answer. <laughs> I love that answer, Ben, because it transported me back to the original Microlights screening room. Yeah. And I was one of your early audience members. Yeah. And I have yeah. to say, like, as you were describing all that, I formed a thought that I don't know if I've ever really put together before, which is... At the time in 2013, I was living in Sheboygan and working for the John Michael Kohler Art Center. And microlight screenings were part of what drew Neil and I back to Milwaukee wow. in a bit in a big way because we we knew we missed like the arts and culture. And something happened like in the winter of 2013 where we started spending time in Milwaukee a little bit more and just getting a taste of, of what we were missing. And I remember coming to some of those early screenings and being like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, I want, I want to be back in this neighborhood. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in Sheboygan anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Not that Sheboygan is a bad place. There's, there's valid and and interesting and cool things happening there certainly, but yeah, there was something so uniquely Milwaukee and it was such a cool cross-section of of folks and the artists that you were bringing in and presenting were artists that I'd never been exposed to and it was just all very yeah, just very inspiring, very fun time to think back on. So yeah, thanks for contributing to the momentum of us moving back to the city. Yeah, I mean, I'm delighted to hear that. And, and thanks for sharing that story. It's, it, it means the world to hear things like that. And I, I often I often fail to realize that Microlights is actually a feature on the landscape in mm-hmm. Milwaukee. And part of that might be due to the fact that we've never had official institutional support. We've never had funding. It's never felt in many ways, like truly material. It's mm. always just on the verge of ephemerality. Mm. And it's been largely, you know, powered by me and a couple of collaborators. It's just so small. And I mean, I still can't wrap my head around that, you know, with, with two years of, of no programming during the peak of, uh, well, we'll call it the quarantine days of COVID, 
you know, it's almost 10 years. And mm. I still, I, every once in a while, I will say to a close friend, um, maybe now's the time uh, to wrap it up. Maybe I'll pack it up. Maybe this is a natural end point. And then someone will say, but it's like part of this place. It's like one of the best. And now I, I sound like I'm tooting my own horn. So forgive say me. It. <laughs> uh, it's like one of the best things happening here. Yes. And yes. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I'm just goofing around. So, uh. <laughs> so that is a great segue to what's coming up for Microlite. So you've recently relaunched. There's an Instagram handle. And you were also the recipient of a grant from the Open Fund. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this what this opportunity means to you? Yeah, well, I mean, as I just mentioned, we've never had support consistently. I will say I, that's been a common refrain, though. A, you know, a couple institutions have supported us in, in small ways. We got our start borrowing equipment from UWM. So all shout out and thanks to... Uh, the folks at UWM, especially Bill Barons, the tech director for, um, you know, graciously lending me equipment. Uh, and th uh, the Poor Farm um, uh, has hosted us for a number of outdoor screenings. And those have come with financial support, which mm. makes things possible in a way that um, otherwise we're kind of figuring out who is nearby and who might be willing to take a bus to get here and we'll like mm. put you up. You know, it's much scrappier otherwise. But so... With the support of the Open Fund, we get to do something that we've never really done before, which is just think about who we want to invite and offer them some funding to get here mm -hmm. on top of the fact that, you know, the door or the money we make at the door goes entirely to our artists. We don't mm -hmm. keep anything. And I do that because I'm gainfully employed. I have a stable job. That's not true for most artists. Uh, it's a thing I've you know, I, a kind of stability I wanted to achieve so I could do things like this. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it the Open Fund enables us to take on programming with a greater degree of freedom and flexibility and the ability to support artists directly, financially. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in all walks of life in the art world and definitely the film world, artists are taken advantage of mm -hmm. pretty... Um, exploitatively, pretty grossly. Um, and so it, it's like a major, of major importance. It is of major importance for me and for Microlights to fund artists, to support artists and to compensate them for their mm -hmm. work as creative laborers. Um, so yeah, so that's the bottom line. Um, what's coming up, I mean, okay. Yeah, what's coming up is we've got a couple of shows lined up conceptually. So <laughs> you know, every your audience will have to bear with me. We do not do a very good job putting together a calendar well in advance. We tend to announce things a little bit late in the game. Things kind of remain in the ether until they like <laughs> drop into reality. But I can say that two things on our horizon is... Uh, would be a shorts program, a program of short films at the end of the summer, um, probably late August, maybe early September. Um, I'm working on curating that now. It will be a collection of shorts loosely programmed around themes of group dynamics, collectivity, togetherness, and some of the kind of affects that surged through us during the pandemic. Mm. Um, frustrations with uh, capitalism and social unrest. And that will include historical works, rentals of 16 millimeter film prints from the archives, uh, as well as contemporary artists' work. So a kind of thematic shorts program. And then in October, we are going to host a local filmmaker, musician, poet, Grace Mitchell, for a program of her solo work, mm. uh, films that she's made over the past few years. And that's an incredible, incredible body of work, dynamic, funny, intense, provocative. It's really killer stuff. Um, Grace is a member of the band Large Print. So, you know, in the meantime, I encourage everyone to listen to that. Yeah, and that, that will be happening in mid-October. And 
those are two things that we're very excited about. And then, yeah, stay tuned. Um, we'll have more programs visiting artists, maybe curation. And yeah, you can, we can, all that info can be found on Instagram or on our website. And on our website, people can sign up for an email list. It's like real fly by the seat of our pants. And <laughs> I think it'll probably always be that. And, uh, but we get things done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. things happen, so. Sure enough. So, so we, we obviously, as we're sort of, as our time is, is sort of drawing to a close, we can't let you go without asking you, what uh, is the, what have you seen most recently that has been your most favorite, <clears throat> but that also somebody can find? <laughs> Right, narrative yeah. or experimental? Okay, so this is an excellent question. And you'll forgive me, I am looking back at my little film diary. Nice. Are you on Letterboxd or, is, or are you not, uh, yes, not about yeah, that lifestyle? I, I am on Letterboxd. I'm going to um, friend you on Letterboxd. Please do, please do. Um, I don't really write reviews or anything, and you can see some ratings that are either grossly inflated, like I give a lot of things five stars. <laughs> And then it's like either five or I, I end up saying something's worth one star. You, you're going to hate me when, when, when we're on letterbox, when we're letterbox friends, you're going to look at all my reviews and, and say, David is a, is a terrible person. <laughs> I, I, I highly doubt that. Um, well, okay. Of like contemporary cinema, I, I don't have much to offer. Honestly, the, the two most recent things I've seen out in the world are the Phil Tippett animation film mad god which was playing at the mm -hmm. oriental phil tippett truly influential in my life because he was the lead animator for films such as robocop and jurassic mm. park and star wars and made some of the like creatures that really were like important to me as a kid in these you know genre flicks uh, his film is pretty technically astounding and if i'm being honest like completely shallow <laughs> and and kind of immature um conceptually thematically but it was a wild ride it was playing at the oriental recently i mean i did see the new top gun and you know i just like i guess i agree with everyone that it's exciting but i just can't get down with fascism so uh <laughs> I, the cognitive dissonance of that experience like, is still something I'm trying to unpack. What has a lot ben to say is, about that. Is that everybody who, in this year of our Lord, 2022, Top Gun Maverick seems to be the only thing they can bring together a totally divided nation. And even the people who have bad things to say about it are sort of like a little bit lukewarm, right? They're like, yeah, you know, the fascism, the military industrial complex, it's terrible. But man, it was fun. Yeah, I mean, I... I have like a really complicated relationship with Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. I think. Don't we all? I mean, he think, I think he's his savior complex is really something to be suspicious of, if not outright reviled by, but boy, does he know how to make mechanically excellent action films? You know, like I admit to adoring the mission impossible franchise in spite of myself. Um, what I would like to do, and, and this is maybe on the verge of hard to access, um, but I, I've set myself a couple of like summer projects. So what I want to say, the best things that I've been watching are, is I've been working my way through a couple of filmmakers canons. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the first of which is, uh, the Taiwanese filmmaker, Siming Liang, um, who is one of the masters of slow cinema and his work is just the most remarkable i'm i've been watching some of his films recently specifically the wayward cloud and i don't want to sleep alone and they are just truly incredible unique poetic visceral tragic works of cinema mm -hmm. his body of work is united by having always collaborated with this actor, Li Kang Shang. And so you see Li in every single one of Sai's films. So there's also this remarkable experience of both bodily agency, but also how cinema captures a body. And you see him age and you see Sai experiment with what can be done to a character on screen in this intense, intensely physical way. It is it, it, they are fictions, but in this way that Li Kang Shang 
moves through all of the films, they become more than fiction, right? They mm -hmm. become a kind of index of this actual human's mm -hmm. embodied experience. It's so beautiful. I've also been watching the, the South Korean director Hong Sang-soo's films, um, which are slow-ish, um, but in a very different way. And uh, I, I think his films are probably a bit more accessible um, and also equally poignant and tragicomic and pathetic. <laughs> um, and, and like, it's just cinematically uh, beautiful. So th those are the two filmmakers who I've been spending a lot of time with and like truly would recommend if people aren't familiar with either. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. important stuff. Well, Ben, before we let you go, I do want to ask you a very important question and it, we we're going to have to wrap up here in just a few minutes, but we do have the power of making our guests the city's leader of arts and culture. Unfortunately, it only lasts for the next couple minutes. So we'd love to hear your take on what you would do with that power in the next few minutes before yeah. the pod winds down. What would you enact as the leader of arts and culture in Milwaukee? Yeah. And sorry, I had to, I have to correct something. I kind of misspoke. Tsai uh, Ming Lang was based in Taiwan, but he's Malaysian. I just don't want to totally misidentify him. Okay. So if if I was the director of arts and culture in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. I would defund the police and give all that money to artists and culture. <laughs> is, is, that, is that the power of the director of arts and culture in Milwaukee? I would create small, yes, uh, I guess I'm really invested in like the, the city and the state funding the arts. And I think that's the move away from that from arts councils, state-run arts councils, those that have been defunded over over like you know decades. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the reasons you get to Wisconsin being the like lowest ranked or one of the lowest ranked mm -hmm. states for art, arts funding. So I would like to, if I were the whatever my position is, mm -hmm. I would invest in small artist grant. You know, even something like twenty five hundred bucks for a project grant, uh, given maybe. Uh, twice a year or annually that any artist can apply to any number of times, just something like that. Um, as many as possible, as much money as possible. Uh, I would put money in the art, in the hands of artists. And yeah, I mean, I would participate in a task force or a working group that would seek to write the, the sinking ship of municipal funding in Milwaukee. And I would try to convince people that funding things like uh, the police is the opposite of productive and that funding things like the arts and arts organizations and other cultural organizations is the best for the health and safety of mm -hmm. the citizens of Milwaukee. Thank you. Let's continue the conversation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, it was a glorious rain, and um, I, I think Imagine can certainly join in the idea of of uh, of expanding funding for arts, culture, and individual artists to just create cool stuff, right? Because when artists create cool stuff, we create a, a healthier and more vibrant and more thriving city. So absolutely, we can certainly join in, in the work in figuring out how we get more funding to artists. Excellent. Yeah, I was happy. I'm, I'm happy to retire. Yeah, it, was, it was really intense. Uh, it's a really hard conversation. Um, where can our audience find you and Microlights? Great question. So our website is simple. It's microlightscinema.org. Um, and again, that's where the audience can sign up for. You can check in. We'll post as soon as we know what our next upcoming events are. And then also um, you can sign up for our mailing list. And then we're on Instagram at microlights underscore cinema. Sort of funny looking back at it now. We haven't been on Instagram that long. So uh, there's not that much there. But I promise that we will post every upcoming event on Instagram. And I think awesome. I just found you on Letterboxd if you are Ben Balcom. Is that correct? Yep, that's me. <laughs> Probably. Um, what have I watched recently? Yep. Uh, yeah. Ornette Coleman documentary. Vive mm -hmm. L'Amour. 
Love nice. It. I can't wait to, to start to, to start diving through your, your lists. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Thank you so much, Ben. This was a treat. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you all. You know, we were talking about this before. Um, we're, we're doing a little bit of kind of like uh, improv stuff for uh, some uh, recruitment work that we're doing uh, with new staff. And I happen to be playing a role that reminds me a lot of the organization of MicroLites. Um, and it just gives me so much joy to see that a real organization that promotes, you know, experimental film exists in Milwaukee. I mean, what an incredible uh, uh, contribution to our arts, arts and cultural ecosystem here. It sincerely is. And even though I like to make fun of the character that you play in these um, live action role play interviews that we've been doing, yeah, I have nothing but so much respect for Ben and, and his co-programmers. Most recently, Jesse McLean. The things that have been presented in Microlights in the past 10 10-ish years have been some of the most impactful artworks that I've experienced. So I can say that. And that's that's pretty amazing that an independent, you know, organization is is producing something that is is feeding the community in a really specific way. And it's it's not just, you know, as as Ben mentioned, you know, he's obviously an instructor at UW Milwaukee, but it's not just the UWM crowd that that filters in uh, to these screenings. It's a really interesting cross-section of Milwaukeeans. Yeah, and I think this, this idea that, that uh, film as art and film as commerce are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They, they, they may have a difficult time being mutually inclusive, but that there's a place. Mm -hmm. for each thing, I think is something that we we often forget about, right? I think we think about film as commerce so much, right? Because right. of, you know, it's the, it's in some ways the main kind of cultural product and end product that engages a, a ton of artists, creatives and, and, and so on and so forth. And that, you know, the quote unquote common man can, can go, can, can go experience, <laughs> um, you know, uh, a cultural product that, that, that brings people together. But I also think there's something about like, you know, the, the, the sort of film as art, um, you know, that, that, that the expression of visual image on screen with music and, you know, like all of the, the stuff, right. Can, can, can kind of have a, an, an artistic aesthetic effect that, that is different from, you know, this other thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's, and that that's important too, right. That, that narrative piece is important too. Totally. And it makes me picture an iceberg, <laughs> like, <laughs> like commercial film, um, even though it's an outsized proportion of of the film you know products that we interact with in our daily lives um there's such a wide world of ways in which people are engaging in and experimenting with film yeah as a medium and if you you need a if you and neil need a a, a cultural sherpa to, to see top gun maverick i'm happy to be that <laughs> cultural sherpa for, for you both thank you <laughs> david can you like work on an elevator pitch for for top gun maverick because mine didn't go over so well i mean i i thought i made a great case for it but um yeah apparently apparently not it needs to come from the horse's mouth i i will put together a powerpoint and and i did pretty good with everything everywhere all at once right uh, you all saw that after i i evangelized sure. about it those two are certainly the two best sort of mainstream Hollywood movies I've seen this summer. Like mm -hmm. one and two, 100%. Wow. So if Neil enjoyed that, then he'll definitely enjoy Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> How sure are you about that? <laughs> I'll, I'll put together that PowerPoint. <laughs> and this also brings up some questions. Like what is enjoying a film, right? And this is something that comes up for me particularly in microlight screenings, because mm. there are so many different layers to the experience. It's not sure. just about going to a movie theater and sitting with your popcorn and watching the previews. And it's, it's nothing like that. In fact, it's, it's going in this case to the open, which is, you know, the, the space where green gallery West is, is currently located in its new incarnation. 
often on a very hot summer night (laughs) and sitting in a folding chair or the couch, if you're very, very lucky, seeing a mixture of close friends to acquaintances, to familiar faces, to characters who have just been showing up for years and you have Mm. no idea who they are or what their names are or how they got on the mailing list in the first place. And then in the case of this weekend screening, um, experiencing, you know, the hum and the purr of uh, a projection machine, which Ben is expertly, you know, manipulating and kind of on the fly adjusting as needed. And then, yeah, getting to sometimes experience what feels more like endurance watching than enter- like raw entertainment. And of course, I'm not, you know, I've dabbled in my own experimental filmmaking, um, but I'm in no way versed in the world of experimental filmmaking or the scholarship or the academic um, aspects of it. But yeah, it's just so interesting to, you come away from watching, you know, as in the case of this Saturday's program, Magellan Drafts and Fragments by Hollis Frampton, like kind of with more questions than answers. Mm. And yet this like really full belly of images that are really evocative and have been kind of playing through my mind since then and like a a Mm. real in my mind since then. Um, And that, that will certainly stick with me. Some of them nostalgic and immersive, some of them, deeply personal and intimate some of them kind of horrific honestly and stomach churning and just yeah it's it's just such a different experience to to digest it and i i love i love the sort of long digestion that that it takes as opposed to you know commercial films or blockbuster films yeah top gun maverick easily digestible goes right through you in 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 the best way (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> like a sugar. <laughs> a sugar. It's definitely a sugar high. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Although, mm-hmm. if yep. you're interested, the the new Jordan Peele movie Nope is is not easily digestible, and that's sort of part mm-hmm. of the uh, the the appeal, I think, of it. But um, yeah. So, what a fun extended outro for our season finale. <laughs> yes. yes. We're just Thanks getting it in because we're there. not going to have a yep. couple, we're not going to have this for a couple of weeks. Right. Right. We got to get our, our rambles, our That's rambles right. out. That's right. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in for season four of Imagine This Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about the show on social media, or go ahead and leave a rating and review. Or if you feel inspired, please feel free to contact us directly at pod at imaginemke.org. Imagine This Podcast is hosted by David Lee, Lindsay Sheridan, and me, Elizabeth Gasparka. The show is produced and edited by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Bobby Drake. To catch all the latest from Imagine MKE, hit us up at Twitter and Instagram at Imagine underscore MKE or Facebook at Imagine MKE. As we said earlier, we'll be taking a little bit of a summer break for the month of August, but we look forward to being back on the pod with you in September. Till then, be sure to listen to back episodes of Imagine This Podcast featuring the fascinating players within Milwaukee's arts and culture scene. Take care, and we'll be back in a few weeks. Have a good summer. Later. Beep, beep, boop. And that's it.